0: To Bible Quest, the Wednesday edition. My name is Joe Works from Elmira, New York. Joining me is Chase Byers.
1: And where are you from, Chase? I'm from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. How are you doing today, Joe?
0: Very good. Thank you. And uh, Mr. Smelser, Jeff Smelser, is also with us. How are you, Jeff?
2: I am fine. And I was in that fine city of Harrisburg yesterday, yesterday or day before yesterday? Monday. Monday I was. All right.
0: And you uh, are in Exton, Pennsylvania. Exton, Pennsylvania,
2: suburb of Philadelphia.
0: live anywhere in the general area of uh, our uh, regions. Uh, We would welcome you to reach out to us. We'd be happy to study the Bible with you or uh, pray with you. Uh, Seek to grow closer to God together in any way that that we can. Uh, So today we're going to talk about a subject that um, is perhaps... uh, uh, touchy or, or difficult uh to to discuss but certainly needs to be want to discuss the the topic of adultery uh looking at what the bible has to say about it what is adultery uh maybe look at some biblical examples of it and then talk about uh if we have time at the very end to discuss what about the person that has committed adultery um what should uh, what should they do um But one of the reasons why I wanted to to talk about that this afternoon, a few weeks ago, there was a discussion here on homosexuality. And one of the arguments that I have heard in favor of homosexuality, or rather against people who would preach against it, um, is, well, you don't say anything about the adulterers uh, that are in your congregations. Uh, You just preach against homosexuality because you hate homosexuals. we want to show, one, that we're being consistent. We want to call sin, sin, regardless of who's doing it or what sin it might be. But also maybe to, to note there, there are some things that are similar and some things that are different in relationship to the immoral practices of adultery and the immoral practices of homosexuality. So do you all have a suggestion on where we would begin to, uh, to talk about maybe the importance of this topic
2: well, you know, just to kind of set the tone for how important it is, God uses adultery as a metaphor for uh, his own people's unfaithfulness to him. He, in, throughout the Old Testament, there's this concept of his people as being his, his bride, his wife, in effect. And he has this covenant relationship with them. And when they stray and they worship other gods, how did the Lord choose to describe that? Well, he tro- chose to describe it as adultery really. And uh, you see that uh, even in the New Testament where James in James uh, chapter 4 says, ye adulteresses, and he uses the feminine adulteresses, females. But he's not just talking about women. He's talking about men and women who are supposed to be God's people, the bride of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ. And yet they they have loved the world. And so if we want to know whether adultery is serious enough, then just take a moment to think about the fact that this is the sin that God uses to represent all unfaithfulness to God.
0: Yeah. Excellent and, point.
2: Yeah. And just to define it strictly then, uh,
1: and it's always in the context of marriage, the marriage relationship, man and a wife being married to one another. And when either of those parties goes out and has sex or sexual immorality, you know, fornicates with, um, somebody or someone or something, they have broken that bond, they have broken that covenant relationship, they have committed adultery um, that's what they've done and so that's what we're talking about
0: exactly right yeah so we're we're really focusing our attention on then the marriage relationship where someone is being unfaithful um, uh, and uh, what passages would you all think of in relationship to uh, either understanding what adultery is or, and I, your definition is exactly right, Chase, but maybe uh, seeing that um, in a text or understanding the uh, the power of it. Jeff, you mentioned in the Old Testament, I think of the book of Hosea, uh, think of Jeremiah in particular, uh, talking about that harlotry for uh, God's people and, and him, but what about the the natural husband and wife relationship?
1: I would start with Mark six is one of the places I would go to help kind of see it in a picture and define it. Okay. Um, yeah. So in Mark six, Mark is going to tell us why John the Baptist got arrested and killed. And uh, it says in Mark six and verse 17 for Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother, Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herodias had a grudge against him. That's John the Baptist. She had a grudge against and wanted to put him to death and could not do so. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. Um, and so the story goes on to tell about how John the Baptist is beheaded through this evil scheme of Herodias. But this is a man who was committing adultery. And so was Herodias. That woman was married to his brother and he took her for himself and married her.
0: Yeah. So let me play the uh, devil's advocate with that. So how is that adultery then? Because they got married. Um, if, if they're married, uh, you know, the text says that he married her, right? So they're, they're not committing adultery then. That's just their second marriage.
2: So this illustrates a, a point that um, in the New Testament, Jesus makes it clear that even though the world may call it marriage, it's adultery. If a man puts away his wife and he goes and he marries another woman, excluding the case where he put her away for fornication, he, mar- he puts away his wife and he goes and he marries another woman. Jesus says that's adultery in Matthew 19th chapter. He says, whosoever shall put away his wife except for fornication and shall marry another commits adultery. Uh, and the same thing is said in Luke. Um, and, and so what this tells us is we don't change the reality just by changing the label. We don't even change the reality just by getting the courthouse to sanction something.
0: And, and I think that's really important to see. Uh, Paul makes a pretty strong uh, uh, determination there in Romans 7 and verse 3. So then if... While her husband lives, she marries another man, she'll be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law so that she's no longer an adulteress, though she's married another man. So there's a pretty good, pretty clear definition of what adultery is, uh, in spite of the fact that they have married, as you talked about, you know, for modern day application. They went to the courthouse, they went to the justice of peace, they they went through a ceremony or whatever. That doesn't matter. Um, sometimes we want to put a pretty bow on something and then say that it's okay. Um, And the fact is, that's still adultery.
1: Mm -hmm. I'd like to explain it just in the context of Mark's gospel as well. Not only does John the Baptist call it unlawful, what is not lawful, later in Mark 10, the way Mark's gospel puts it, Jesus says, if the woman divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. Like it's, it's right there. And that's what Herodias had done. She had, I think in some ways, had divorced Philip, married Herod. That's adultery. This is what we're talking about. And it was yeah. unlawful.
0: Yeah. And so let me back up just a little bit. It's hard to know exactly where to put all of this in, in order. Um, but one of the things that we wanted to do in talking about this topic was because of that discussion a couple of weeks ago on uh, homosexuality, um, and again, an argument that I have heard is, but the the churches are full of people who are committing adultery, and then people come back and go, no, no, that's not adultery. They divorced and, and remarried. One of the interesting things is these passages are really clear to people who are committing homosexuality. Um, they can see the, what these passages teach. They understand that, that this is adultery, and there are far too many religious groups that just accept these adulterous relationships, and that ends up hurting the argument, uh, the biblical argument, for homosexuality. Now, to some degree, they're just looking for excuses. Yeah, on the very episode, much so. We need to be consistent in what we condemn because the Bible condemns it.
1: Yeah. And to illustrate Joe's point, the same passage Jeff and I sat on in, in uh, a few podcasts ago, First Corinthians 6, 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. Right there in the same list right next to each other is homosexuality and adultery.
0: Mm-hmm. Good, good point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we're, we're not trying to pick on one group or the other. We have, we have no bone to pick personally uh, with, with people. We too are sinners. But what we need to do is make sure that we're clear in encouraging people to get out of sin by calling sin for what it is. And so if people are in those homosexual acts, listen to that podcast from a couple of weeks ago, please. If, if you're in a situation where you have, uh, you're married, you divorced that person, you married somebody else, what do these scriptures say? What, what does the Bible call you then in that situation? Uh, we, we really need to to think carefully about the seriousness of this,
2: so I saw an article today uh, where somebody was talking about how much how what a pity it is that in our current state of affairs, there would be people who would object to one presidential candidate because he is married to a man, and they referred to that as homophobic. Um, is it adulterophobic? if I object to uh, somebody divorcing his wife and marrying another woman or just running around on his wife, if I object to a man who has married a woman and he's supposedly devoted to her, but he's sleeping with another woman. And I say, that's wrong. Is that adulterophobic? Well, uh,
0: probably if the person is committing adultery, that's what you would be accused of. Um,
2: uh, I'm not sure I would be accused of, of did you say if, if the person is a, is committing adultery that's what I'd be accused of or he's defending that, adultery that, 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 that,
0: that they would accuse you of that they they would say well you know no i am just uh you know i, I wasn't in love don't I have a right to that, that no that's that gets and i found you know my secretary or whatever you know and we have fallen in love and you know i have a right to to be with her i have a right to be happy doesn't god want me to be happy
2: that gets to the heart of the problem uh that is common to both defenses of of uh adultery and and uh, homosexuality which may be adultery and and that is that we have we have exalted my my right to be happy and my right to Love whomever I want to love. And of course, we've distorted the meaning of love when we say that. Um, so maybe it's worthwhile. We spend a few minutes talking about that. Good good point. Because
0: really, the fact that, and all we have to do is go back to, you know, the, the boomer age and, uh, you know, recognize when free love began to, to be encouraged and, you know, er, er, everything was 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 free and fun and, and permissible. And then that led to then people who were married wanting to have that fun and so forth. And so as the nation gets more and more immoral, we ought not to be surprised that we reach a point where no sort of sexual morality can be condemned. Um, uh, so you want to touch on that, that topic there some, Jeff?
2: Yeah, you know, one of the things that, one of the things about the gospel of jesus christ is it calls it calls us to look to the example of jesus and to live accordingly and the, and the example of jesus is self sacrificing uh, when jesus goes to the cross he doesn't go to the cross because this was going to be fun he doesn't go to the cross because he had a right to be happy he went to the cross to give himself up for others marriage can be a wonderful thing my wife is a great blessing to me and it brings great joy and satisfaction to my life that I can share it with somebody and we have children together and we can share those children together. We have grandchildren that we have uh, uh, come from, our, that have come from our children that we can, we can grow old together watching our grandchildren grow young together or something like that. And, and it's just a great joy, but the fact is it takes some commitment which means that I have to be willing to sacrifice my own agenda sometimes. I have to sacrifice my own goals, my, the things that I would want in order to please her. And she does very much. She does the very same thing for me. And if we didn't, if we were just two people who were just adamant, I want to do what I want to do. And as long as I'm in love with you, then you can be a part of it. But when I'm not in love with you anymore, too bad. I have a right to be happy well, I would lose a lot of happiness in reality. I would end up, uh, in trying to be self-serving and self-seeking and doing what I want, I would end up making myself miserable, truth be told.
0: And, and, and we need to think not just about our own instantaneous or temporary happiness, uh, what might give us some pleasure. Uh, Hebrews 11 talks about the passing pleasure of sin, uh, what we need to do is esteem the the riches of Christ as greater uh, or the reproaches of Christ as greater riches than uh, passing pleasures of sin. Um, but really maybe just come back to that very argument and challenge it. Sometimes people make it almost as a rhetorical. Doesn't God want me to be happy? Well, the fact is God wants you to be holy. Yeah. That's where we need to begin. Uh, and so if, if your happiness is unholiness, then you're making the wrong choice.
1: Um, and I would also submit you're really unhappy deep down inside as well. You have convinced yourself that this will
2: make you happy, but you're just as empty as you were to begin with if you're not being filled up with the Lord. right? There's just a different definition of happiness in the Bible. Uh, you know, In, in the Beatitudes, in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, where it says, blessed are the poor in spirit, uh, you could very well translate that happy. Happy are the poor in spirit. Happy are they that mourn. Happy are the meek. Happy are the, uh, those who have been persecuted for righteousness' sake, down in verse 10. That may not sound like uh, happiness to a lot of people, but it's because this is a much more profound happiness. Right. This, is a, this is a blessedness. This is a, a kind of happiness that is eternal that, and that comes with a relationship with God.
1: And that's part of being transformed by the renewal of your mind, uh, Romans 12. Where we once thought we knew what true happiness was, the more we submitted to the gospel, our definition of being happy changed. And if we submit to the grace of God, he will transform our mind. He will transform us into appreciating more so what his will for us and our happiness is. And I, I firmly believe that. Um, I do want to talk about something along these lines. Uh, if I'm moving past something you guys wanted to say, I'll stop now.
0: We always well, come just, back. Let me pause because we got a couple of comments, I think. Uh, somebody had commented about lying and stealing, maybe. Um, I'm not sure who that was in the, in the comment section there. Uh, but uh, I wonder if they were making the connection that would, would those same arguments be true for somebody who was stealing you know, well, I just want to be happy, so don't I have a right to these things? Uh, you know, well, what about lying? Um, you know, would would we make the same application to that? And I think even maybe just a few years ago, we would say, it's not okay to lie. Uh, that's a wrong thing to do. I'm afraid that we can't really make that argument nearly as easily with people anymore because truth is so individual in many people's minds, your truth and my truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe even stealing is uh, is justified, uh, you know, because of racism or because of oppression. Well, now it's okay for me to steal from somebody else because I have been wronged in the past or my people have been wronged in the past. I hear those arguments. Um, and so there's really a, a lot of those same sorts of things fall into the same category where we can, we can make whatever justification we want, but if God has condemned it, then we need to refrain from it.
1: I, I think going along with that, I, I try to think about the person who is looking at the Christians and saying, well, you're saying homosexuality is a sin, but you're not holding people's feet to the fire about adultery. Um, I, w- I understand that. Like, we need to be consistent. That's Joe's whole point for this podcast. But here's, I think, the difference between those two things in our culture right now. Homosexuality is being celebrated. Adultery still is not being celebrated, except with one exception. In the event uh, that a man myself runs out on my wife, if I'm sleeping with a neighbor, another woman, what is the world going to say about me? You dog, you horrible, awful person. I can't believe... You would break your vows. You have no self-control. I can't believe you're doing that. And they would be right to ridicule me and grab and, you know, get after me. But if I go and sleep with another man, I'm still committing adultery. That is still within the biblical definition of committing adultery. Yep. But but, but
0: now you're being true to yourself.
1: Right. That's my question. How, How does the world treat it when a man or a woman breaks their marriage vows by cheating with somebody of the same sex? It's often celebrated. and it's all in this movement to try and force down, I think, Christian's throats, the acceptance of homosexuality, even to the degree that if you cheat on your spouse with someone of the same sex, we're going to celebrate it. Be consistent.
2: I think that's such, and, a, uh, yeah. I think that's such a powerful point. I hear so many people who are kind of chafing at condemnation of homosexuality. And, and, and they want to say, well, this, this, these other things, we ought to talk about these other things too. And I really think what I'm hearing some of the time is we don't want to condemn homosexuality, but what they are failing to realize is there is this, this, this double standard out there. And it just, what you just said, just to repeat it, a man cheats on his wife with another woman and most people would say, that's terrible. A man cheats on his wife with another man and people will say, Oh, He's being true to himself now. He's he's not being forced to live a lie anymore, and that's celebrated. And what that says is, homosexuality has taken a special place, a prestigious place in our society, that not even adultery has. Now, Joe, you were right earlier when you when you made the point. It was the fact that we became a promiscuous society. And all of a sudden, you know, fornication became a thing that everybody does. And then, oh, then adultery, divorce, and remarriage became a thing that everybody does. And you just expect it. And once we went down that road, we put ourselves in a position where it was hard to then condemn somebody else for their sexual immorality. Because if we condemn them, we're going to end up exposing ourselves to being condemned because the same Bible condemns all of it. Um, But I appreciate the point you made, Chase.
0: Yeah, very important that we consider, and that we make that same application to just because a person went through the legal steps of getting a divorce in the courts and marrying somebody, then sometimes that's celebrated, and it's demanded in in families that that we accept that new marriage relationship. Um, And and again, uh, just because the government has sanctioned it, as Jeff mentioned earlier, we ought not to uh, ignore that that is sin. We ought not to have fellowship with uh, that activity.
2: Here's the problem. You know, people, people who are, we have people who are homosexuals today, and they try to point to the Bible and justify what they're doing. And they try to say the Bible really doesn't condemn it. But I'll tell you what, the fact is, whether I'm, I'm a practicing homosexual, or in many cases, I'm committing adultery, the real problem is I have a lack of faith in the word of God. I have a lack of faith in, in the God who made me. Uh, I doubt what, I may doubt that he exists. I may doubt what he said. I may doubt the Bible is really his word. But if we go back to, to the Bible, and, and I'm, gonna, I'm just going to, as an aside here, appeal to the uh, passage in Hebrews, the third chapter, that it talks about the Israelites' problem in the wilderness, an evil heart of unbelief. It's not that they didn't believe God existed but they did not put their trust in his word. And and so you go back to the beginning, when God established marriage, when he created the man and the woman, and male and female created he them. And you have the the context in Genesis chapter 2, where God says it's not good for man to be alone. He's going to create a help suitable to the man, somebody who corresponds to the man. And Adam names all the animals and, and he sees, there's nothing that corresponds to me there. And then God takes a bone from Adam, a rib, and out of that rib, he fashions a woman so that the man then, when he realizes what has happened, he can say, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. We correspond, man and woman, or in Hebrew, ish and isha. Um They correspond, they go together. And so then the text says, verse 24, For this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother, and they shall cleave his wife, and, and not they, he shall cleave his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So here's this in the beginning. One man and one woman, and they form a unit. And then they have children. The Lord told them to be fruitful and multiply. And children come into this blessed relationship where there are two people that have become one and they're committed one to another. They're devoted one to another. And those children have a secure environment in which to be raised. And they have the the feminine influence from the mother and the masculine influence from the father. That's the way it's supposed to be. Then we come a little bit further in the Old Testament and, and not very far. And we see Lamech. And what do we see Lamech doing? Multiple wives. Multiple wives. And Lamech is pictured as an arrogant man. And then you go through the Old Testament, and you see great men of faith, Abraham, um, Jacob. They both had multiple wives. And in both cases, it wasn't a healthy situation.
1: Exactly. And
2: then you see in the Law of Moses, where there is a allowance made for putting away wives. But then we come to the New Testament. And when the Pharisees come to Jesus and ask him, is it, is it lawful to put away your wife for any cause and Jesus' basically says no. And they say, well, what about Moses? You know, he allowed. it." And Jesus says from the beginning, it was not so. And so what Jesus does, he calls us back to what was true in the beginning. And what was in the beginning was one man and one woman. They become one. Not they live together for a while, as long as they're happy, but they become one. And then they, they produce children and you have these families. Contrast that with the world in which we live where you see so many broken homes and so many kids who have to explain, Mm -hmm. well, I have, you know, my dad and my other dad, or my mom and my other mom, or, or, you know, I have this grandparent and that's my step grandparent and this. And, and they, do they, does it seem like they are profiting from all of that? Does it seem like they are more secure? Does it seem like they grow up more emotionally healthy with all of that? No. And then we see what's the study that's been done of all these shootings that take place. And one of the common factors has been the missing missing father figure in all of those things. And so the point that I'm trying to get in all of that rambling is that God had a plan in mind that works for families and for societies. Adultery is a perversion of that plan. It's an abandonment of that plan. Homosexuality is a perversion of that plan. It's an abandonment of that plan.
0: Excellent points. Uh, and the only thing I would disagree with is that it wasn't ramblings. Uh, it, it's, it's the consistent story throughout the, the scriptures of, of just recognizing how God viewed marriage relationship, uh, the uh, Hebrews uh, 13, uh, the marriage bed undefiled um, that's that's God's desire, and man cannot just uh, ignore God's rules for marriage without suffering some consequences. And and you listed some of those consequences: just watching the destruction of the family, the the nucleus, and the nation as well. And I think that's some of what we're seeing today is the result of that abandonment of the father figure and of the, the, uh, the permanence of marriage, so it's leading to more and more sexual confusion.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: I, I think talking about all these consequences of families who've committed adultery, it, it makes you realize why it's just such a harshly punished sin uh, throughout Scripture. Even in the Old Testament, being punishable by death for somebody who commits a sin just as this. I do not believe that we are in the old law anymore for any of those who are listening. So, but I do believe we see in scripture, it is still condemned and it's condemned pretty harshly and adulterers from my understanding. If you commit adultery, um, I believe my, my understanding of Matthew nineteen nine the, the innocent party has a right to divorce and the person who committed adultery, guess what they have in store for the rest of their life, singleness, loneliness. They're no longer allowed to marry again. Uh, and I, I believe that's a harsh consequence, but it's a harsh thing you did to betray somebody like that. Um, that's a form of betrayal. I can't think of one greater um, other than obviously our betrayal of the Lord. And of course, Judas's betrayal of Jesus. Um, not, but.
2: not everybody. And we're going to talk about if I have committed adultery, what now? And, and we're going to talk about the fact that there can be forgiveness and I can have eternal life. And not everybody who is a Christian uh, and is serving God faithfully now uh, has always been sexually pure. Um, and, and not everybody who is who's serving God faithfully now had the benefit of being raised in uh, a home where a father and a mother uh, stayed together and, and loved each other and were faithful to each other. But I, I will tell you this. I, I, had, I was blessed to be raised in a home where my father loved my mother and my mother loved my father. Um, I, I think I've said it this way before. My father adored my mother and my mother was devoted to my father. And what that provided was a security uh, that I grew up with. I never doubted. There was never a day when I wondered if my dad was going to leave. There was never a, a time when I wondered if, if my, my wife, my, my, mo- my mother, might want to be the wife of an, another man or she might want to go away. I, I, I could go through whatever troubles I went through. You know, we talk about kids being bullied. We talk about kids uh, having a hard time at school. We, have, we talk about all kinds of th- things that kids grow up with difficulties they experience. But for me, whatever I experienced in life I knew when I came home, I belonged there to the two people who are my parents, and they were going to be there. And if I'm a child and I'm growing up and my father is cheating on my mother and she's suspicious, you know, and she's wondering what's going on, I'm going to pick up on vibes. I may not know what's going on, but I'm going to pick up on vibes. Something's not right here. And what does that do to the security for a child growing up? Can, can I ask you a question, Jeff? Yeah. How much
1: of that beautiful upbringing you're describing influenced your understanding of the Lord?
2: Well, I'm sure much more than I was even conscious of because the Bible pictures God as a father figure. Exactly. And I had a father figure who was loyal and true, and I could count on him and I could depend on him. So my picture of a father was somebody I could count on. I knew he was going to be there and he loved me and he cared for me. and He correct me. But when he corrected me, I still knew he would be there and he loved me. And so when I then think came to understand God as father, that was my picture of a father, but where you have a man who runs out on his family because he wants to be happy. What picture of a father do his kids have?
0: Excellent point. So maybe thinking a little bit along maybe the opposite angle of that uh, blessed story uh, of your uh, childhood and and understanding. In 2 Samuel 13, uh, you have a horrible incident described uh, where uh, a man named Amnon uh, is in love with his half-sister, and uh, he tricks her into coming into his bedroom and then he rapes her, and after he rapes her, then he hates her yeah uh, sends her away it's a horrible story yeah the thing that is missing afterward is and for those of you that are familiar with the bible story and is not just any old person he's a prince he is the son of a king uh, King David in particular, and so uh you would Expect there to be a verse following to say something about David condemning this action and uh, you know doing something in in relationship, punishment for the son or something, but that's missing. Yeah, why would that be missing in this text? Would you think?
2: Mm -hmm.
0: And and I realize that we're conjecturing a little bit here, but I think context helps us with that.
2: yeah, verse 13, as for me, where could I get rid of my reproach? And as for you, you'll be like one of the fools in Israel. This is the daughter speaking who's going to be raped. Now, therefore, please speak to the king. He will not withhold me from you. It's like these these children had been raised uh, to just whatever they wanted. That'll give it to us. And as a matter of fact, in, in, in 1 Kings chapter 1, uh, there's another son of David's who rebels and tries to take the kingdom from him, and the text makes note of the fact in verse six. His father had never crossed him at any time by asking, "Why have you done so?" So apparently, in that household, David was not doing a good job of holding his children accountable. And
0: and particularly, I think you're exactly right. And particularly, Second Kings thirteen that story of Amnon unsurprisingly comes right after second samuel yes which comes right after second samuel 11 yes. Yes. Uh, that's the way that numbers work um, uh, but what happens in second samuel 11 and 12 the story of david and
2: bathsheba david had kind of destroyed the moral high ground when he committed adultery with bathsheba taking another man's wife
0: how could he speak against Ammon? How could he speak against Absalom? How could he speak against Adonijah? Uh, on and on we go. The, the family, the, that, that cohesiveness that, that you described um, from, from your parents and what you had come to know, that's missing in, in this story of David and his children. and it's just, it's just a really sad. Uh, David is a man after God's own heart. David was a good man, but he really failed. At raising his family as he should have particularly in in this context um, and, and we get to see the danger of that and so my plea in wanting to to think through this topic is especially for people who have not yet married uh, understand that marriage is an act in the presence of God and is a is a promise and, and uh, that, that God has given to us of, of marriage. We need to honor that as God would have us to.
2: And so we see David's children. I'm sorry, Chase, go ahead. Well, I just want to say something about David's children. This
1: is a really interesting point. David has four sons that die in biblical narrative. Three out of those four sons were born to him at Hebron, Adonijah, Absalom, and Amnon. All three of those sons would have likely known and understood what their father had done with Bathsheba and then with Uriah the Hittite in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. Mm -hmm. The fourth son to die was the result of the child with Bathsheba. And I I don't want to speculate too much on that, but I do think that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. The storyline almost follows the fate of David's sons that saw him do that crime and, and to commit adultery. And I think that's really powerful. Now, the story picks up with Solomon and it goes on from there. But I love pointing that out.
2: So we, we put a lot of emphasis in our society today. When there's a divorce, each parent is still going to try to be there for the children. And they're going to divorce, but they're going to try to work to, to, okay, we'll share custody. And, and it's very important that the father still have time. If the father doesn't have custody, he still has time with the children. And, and parents who've been divorced will move so that they can they'll relocate and be near their, their children. And they'll, they'll make all of those adjustments You know what, if you've you've gone through a divorce and that's where you are, that's about all you can do, but you know what, better than that, see to it that your marriage is what it ought to be before there's a divorce. We put so much emphasis on doing everything for the children, but the children are going to benefit the most if couples will put effort into securing their marriage and being faithful to one another in their marriage. That's really what's going to benefit the children. And so, I, I just a word of advice to, to married couples: don't neglect your relationship with one another. Uh, don't let that be at expense of taking care of your children. If you if you are doing what you ought to to make your marriage what it ought to be, that's going to go a long way toward providing what your children need.
0: We're, we've not discussed the exception in the, the marriage and divorce uh, scenario as. As Matthew 19 describes, it is an exception. We're talking about the rule here. And so as far as the rule is concerned, I would just suggest that one way to, to understand this is that when you divorce, you destroy your family. You know, the, the, that that relate there, there is no more of a family there. You have fractured pieces of a family. It's like taking a a, a vase and dropping it on the ground. Do you still have a vase? No, you have pieces. And, and so every part of that family is, is hurt in that. And uh, I, I've heard people make statements like, you know, well, I, I, I left your mother, but uh, I, I've not left you all. I've not abandoned you. Well, yeah, if that was the decision you made, then, then there is abandonment that even goes on. And, and I guess I'm going to speak really strongly about that. I, I feel strongly about it from a personal vantage point. But also these passages, I think, help us to understand uh, that a father, uh, that a husband has a responsibility, he has a responsibility as a father, and if he decides that he's going to be absent, you know, except for one weekend, uh, you know, every two weeks he gets them for a weekend, you're not being a father in in that. If that, if that and I'm talking about that's your decision. Sometimes uh, a man or a woman is forced into that because of the ungodliness of the other person. I feel for you in that situation. I'm mm-hmm. not condemning somebody that isn't, that does, that is being victimized in this, but if you're making a choice to step away from your spouse, you're also making a choice to step away from that family.
2: Yeah.
0: And, and that's Amen. An abandonment. Amen. Um, so what about, uh, I'm in this situation. I've committed adultery. I've, I've, I've failed at this. I've, I've messed up my family. Is there any hope? Is there, is there any recourse at all that can be taken? We've got just five minutes. I, I don't want to leave us with just this sense of condemnation and guilt because the Bible doesn't leave us with just condemnation and guilt.
1: Well, it's in that some- same list we looked at in 1 Corinthians 6 uh, that we looked at with homosexuality where Paul is listing off these horrible, evil sins – Paul says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. These people had left that sin, and it had been forgiven.
2: Good, good yeah, so just to, to emphasize that, apparently some of the people at Corinth uh, could have been adulterers, but washed, sanctified, justified. So it's not hopeless. Sometimes people in these situations say, was well, there no hope for me? Yes, there's hope for you. Jesus died to take away sin, and that includes adultery. And
1: there might be hope in your spouse willing to forgive you and reconciling that marriage. And by God's grace and through his power, you can try and mend that relationship. Like that vase, it's not going to be perfect again, uh, but it can be restored. But another consequence is could be you don't get to marry again. Um, you might have to be single the rest of your life, but we're talking about eternity versus our life here.
0: And so the choice would seem to be you could decide to respond like Herod did. He got mad, threw John in prison. Eventually, he and Herodias then together, John is is murdered as as a result of, of their adultery and John's clear teaching on that subject. That's one way to go. Let's get mad at Jeff and, Chase and Joe and, you know, anybody else that's going to preach against my happiness and, and my second marriage or whatever. Or you can be like David when Nathan approached him in, uh, in 2 Samuel 12 and then look at Psalm 51 and Psalm 32 uh, and recognize that, no, I can repent of this. I can make the changes. Marking back to last week's podcast, right, uh, understanding what true repentance is. Uh, I can change. I can't undo some of the things that I've done, but I can manifest my godly sorrow by living a holy life from this point forward and and seeking to show people that I am truly sorry by the actions that I now commit.
2: And I would understand that practically that would mean not continuing in the adulterous relationship. Exactly.
1: Yeah. In verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 6, you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. That is what God expects of you if you're going to turn your life to him and repent of that sin. Um, From there on, sin no more.
0: Amazing. In that context of 1 Corinthians 6, what you're referring to, Paul seems to be making a broader application of what he's been talking about in 1 Corinthians 5 of uh, the the man who had his father's wife. Uh, Again, just a really ugly scenario there. It would appear, when we get over to 2 Corinthians, that that man has repented and is returned to the Lord, and Paul is encouraging the church to welcome him and to, to encourage him as well. You know, there are some very horrible, ugly things that you or I could have done in the past that we can come back to the Lord. We can be a part of his people again. That's why Jesus died, he didn't die for sinless men to, be, to continue being sinless. He died for sinful people to be able to have a relationship with God. And so this opportunity is is afforded even to the adulterer.
2: The, sometimes people have a hard time with the idea of I'm, I've divorced my wife, I've married again, and Jesus says that's adultery. But how do I, how do I undo this? The the cost is too great. They think of, and now I've got children with this second woman, and and you know they think about all of that. You know Jesus is demanding on a number of occasions. He illustrates how demanding he is that we can't serve two masters. We've got to serve him above all else. And there's the the disciple who comes to him and says I want to follow you, but first let me bury my father. And Jesus says Let the dead bury the dead. You follow me. Um, there's the rich young ruler who. who comes to Jesus and asks what he must do to have eternal life. And Jesus says, uh, sell everything that you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. And what Jesus is teaching in those passages is really what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And it means being willing to give up whatever I have to give up. And uh, we go back to Matthew 19, and it's in this passage when Jesus is, is in a setting where adultery was commonplace, um, Josephus is a first-century historian, and he was divorced twice at three different wives, if I remember correctly, and he just comments on how common it is. It's in that context that, that Jesus is asked, is it permissible to put away a wife for any cause? And he says no, and then the disciples ask him further about this. After he said, whosoever puts away his wife and marries uh, another commits adultery, Mark tells us that the disciples' question comes later on when they're in the house. And so they come to Jesus, and they want to know more about this. And, he, and they say, you know, it's, it's just best not even to marry them. And he says, well, there are some who are eunuchs, for, uh, eunuchs because they were born that way. There are some who are eunuchs um, because they were made so by men. And then there are some who are eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. And what he's saying is not that you necessarily have to be physically castrated, but sometimes in order to serve God, you're going to have to be celibate. You may be in that situation. So again, my ability to just have sexual relations with someone is not number one on the list serving God is. I'm sorry, we're out of time. I didn't realize I was running past the clock yeah, there. That,
0: that's, a, that's a great place to, to end. Uh, thank you all for participating. Thanks for those that have listened and uh, sent in comments and questions as well. God bless you all.